the Stevens College MFA in TV and Screenwriting presents How I Wrote That. Hello, everybody. Welcome to How I Wrote That. I'm your host, Kanisha Foster. We're back here at Jim Henson Studios, and we are doing our mentor series. And this is my treat. I get to introduce you to our very valuable and honored teachers. So today, I get to introduce you to Debbie Seibel. Hi, Debbie. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Um, I'm going to brag about you for a second, and then we'll get back to questions. Please. Um, so uh, Debbie is not only a writer for TV, but you started as a, a journalist. Yes. Um, and so you were a television reporter. You won a George Foster Peabody Award um, for invest investigative journalism, two Emmy Awards for spot and live news coverage, and first place for the Associate Press for one of your documentaries. You're a print journalist. Um, you've written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, which is my home paper, <laughs> The Parade, and USA Today, um, and many other things. You wrote for, t for TV shows Sisters, Touched by an Angel, Promised Land, Mysterious Ways, 21 Jump Street. We could go on and on. You teach. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. So we're going to jump in. We'll just chat a little bit about your work. Um, I want to start with this fascinating life of writing you've had, coming from journalism to screenwriting. Did you start in journalism? Were you always interested in both? Tell us about that. I did start in journalism. Um, I am a failed major in pre-veterinary medicine. Oh. So this is what a failed major looks like. <laughs> Pretty successful. Uh, yeah, my father was a physician and my mother oh. was an intensive care nurse. So I always thought I was going to go into medicine. And then I ran into organic chemistry and a few other classes, and my teacher said, you're great at Shakespeare. You're marvelous <laughs> at sociology. And I thought, oh, I'm excelling at all the wrong things. Wow. So that was at the University of Pennsylvania, which was a very, very tough Ivy League school. So after two years of that, I went back home to Minnesota. And my parents begged me to stay in college, even though I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I got a job right across the street from KSTP, which was the number one television, news, and radio station in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And all of these interesting people kept coming in to buy cigarettes and candy and whatnot. And I thought, boy, that, I've never paid attention to the television station. It's been my bus stop for 100 years, but I've never really looked at it. So I went home and looked through the course catalog and I landed on journalism and I read the course entries and the descriptions for journalism classes and I thought I'm interested in all of this every one of these wow. and um, it was my junior year and I thought alright I'll go back to school I'll become a journalism major and that's really how it happened it was completely by chance wow. stumbled into it discovered I had a knack for it loved being a reporter loved talking to people loved doing interviews um, and then, because of that same job in the little grocery store across the street, met the program director of KSTP Radio, who offered me a job at the State Fair hmm. and to run the KSTP Radio booth at oh, the State wow. Fair. So 
I did that, and after that he said, would you like to be my assistant? And I said, sure. So basically, during my last two years of college, I was already working at KSTP, first in the radio station, and then the television production department decided that they wanted to hire their first woman. And that was an incredibly hard job because it was as a floor director, which most people don't understand, but a floor director basically moves scenery. Wow. That's what you do. You make sets for local shows. And I was not qualified to do that job. There are very few women who are qualified to do that job because it involves moving sandbags mm -hmm. and huge pieces of, of, of scenery and uh -huh. so on. But they wanted a woman to become a director and you have to start on the floor and work your way up into the booth. And the top of the line then was to become the director of the local newscast mm. so that you'd be in the booth directing the six and 10 o'clock news, which is what wow. I became. So this very physical job was literally a barrier to get to this other job of really leading the whole room. Exactly, wow. exactly. So that happened over the period of my graduating from the University of Minnesota with a degree in broadcast journalism. And when I did graduate, then I had a hunger to get into the newsroom because that's what I ultimately wanted. So they took me on as a summer relief reporter and I started doing that. Um, at the end of the summer, it was the first year that they had not absorbed their summer relief interns into the newsroom. So there are three of us on internships in the newsroom and none of us were absorbed. And I thought, oh my God, I've been at KSTP for five years and now I have to leave. Yeah. What am I gonna do? So I had an offer from a station in Fargo, North Dakota, which <laughs> scared the hell out of me because I'd never been to North Dakota and I didn't wanna go. <laughs> and a friend of mine who said, well, why don't you come to Chicago and be a summer relief news writer and I said well can I really do that and she said yeah come in and have an interview and you know well and I thought all right well for the summer I could go and be a news writer in Chicago and I said well how much does it pay and she said six hundred dollars and I said oh six hundred dollars a month because it's you know summer no uh -huh. no six hundred dollars a week yes please and I thought that's more money than I'd ever seen in my whole life wow. so I did I went to WLS Chicago and had an interview and they said what do you want to do ultimately? And I said, I want to work for WCCO in Minneapolis. I want to go home, which was the stupidest <laughs> thing that you could possibly say. Here I was in the third market in America. Oh my gosh. And one of the greatest news markets ever, telling them that I didn't want them. Ultimately, I wanted Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of a homebody. So, so whatever the reason, they still hired me. And after the summer, they kept me and made me a full-time news writer. Then I became an associate producer and then a show producer and a field producer and a documentary producer and wow. so on and so forth. Um, and worked my way up there doing all the jobs that you can do in, in a newsroom in Chicago. Um, and I loved it, but when you're in a high-powered newsroom like that, it's, it's kind of like broadcast news. You have no life. That right. is your life. Mm -hmm. And so I would go home and watch primetime television. Um, and it was my solace. It was my comfy blanket. It was my escape from the world and just get lost in Hill Street Blues and LA Law and China Beach mm -hmm. and all of these fabulous shows that I wished would never end and Masterpiece Theater on PBS. And I thought, how do they do that? How do they make me feel so much? Mm. So. Then a, a couple of other things happened. I, I spent. I was offered a, a job as an executive producer in um, Phoenix, Arizona, for the Gannett news stations, 
And I thought, well, I've always been intrigued by the West, and so maybe I'll try that. So I did, hated it, <laughs> hated it, and thought, how do I get back to Chicago? So I was granted a William Benton Fellowship at the University of Chicago, and immediately after a year went back to Chicago and started work for WBBM, the CBS mm -hmm. affiliate, um, again as a news writer and producer. Then we went out on strike against CBS, and while we were on strike, I was on the picket line, and we were joined in sympathy with some screenwriters from Hollywood <laughs> because we were represented by the WGA. Yeah. CBS was a signatory to the WGA. So one of them said, why don't you try screenwriting? And I thought, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> he said, well, that's okay. Just write something and I'll read it. And I'll say, it's fun. <laughs> and we were out for seven weeks, so I thought, why not? Okay, so the other opportunity I had was to start writing as a freelancer for the Chicago Tribune while we were out, because we weren't making any uh -huh. money, of course. So I started writing for a newspaper, which was unbelievable. It was so much fun. And I thought, wow, you get to be treated like a human being, mm -hmm. unlike a newsroom. You get to have a life. You get to go home when your story is done. People actually tell you you've done a good job. It was mind-blowing wow. to work for the Chicago Tribune. And I started writing these scripts. So I wrote this a script for The Cosby Show. And this lovely man um, on the picket line read the script with me in a coffee shop. And he said, huh. well, this is a mess, <laughs> but you're a writer. Huh. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm going to bring you some scripts. And he said, keep writing. And when I think you're ready, I'll send your name to a guy I know who made the transition from journalism to creative writing in Hollywood. And maybe he can help you get an agent. And I thought, okay. So I spent the next two years writing for the Chicago Tribune and writing scripts. And this person, who happens to be Jeff Melvoin, who is now one of the premier showrunners <laughs> oh in the gosh. land, um, was true to his word. And he said, um, I'm, I've given your name to an agent. And she said, yeah, come out here. I'd want to meet you. Wow. So I went out to Hollywood, hated it, hated <laughs> it. And she said, yeah, I'll represent you, but you have to live here. And I said, oh, I don't want to live here. Oh my gosh. So I said, all right, I'll come for three months. Okay. And if I don't get a job, I'm going home. And home that at that point meant Chicago, because I'd been in Chicago for 10 years. Yeah. Or Minnesota, but whatever. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to be Hollywood. If I don't get a job, I'm out of here. I kept my apartment in Chicago. I was not, not committed. I got a, a freelance episode of 21 Jump Street almost immediately, wow. which today, I mean, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So I thought, oh, my goose is cooked. Now <laughs> I'm working and this is kind of fun and whatever, whatever. But it took quite a long time um, because it wasn't immediate. I did a couple of freelance scripts and then didn't get staffed immediately. So the Chicago Tribune had asked me, to write for them when I went to Hollywood because they didn't have an entertainment reporter. And if I was going to be there, Perfect. why not? And I thought, well, thank you, Lord, yeah. because now I won't be sitting by the phone, right? And I'll have something to do. You have to have something to do You have here. to have something to do. Mm -hmm. So I was able to interview all the people I worshiped, <laughs> starting with Stephen Bochco wow. and David Milch and Aaron Sorkin. And I mean, on and on. It wasn't the stars. I, I could have cared less. I, mm -hmm. I, was I was never starstruck. I was happy to meet them and do yeah. those pieces, but I was more interested in the brains behind the entertainment. So 
I did. I, the Chicago Tribune led to the LA Times because my editor called an editor from the LA Times and said, you ought to use her. So I started freelancing for them. And then the, the editor at the LA Times threw my name over to TV Guide and they hired me full time and with a really good paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I didn't come here to do this, but this is kind of fun. Yeah. And at that time, which was the mid 90s, TV Guide ruled the world. I mean, it was a circulation of 19 million. Yes. It was on every coffee table in America. It was in every hotel room in America. It sure was. And so every door automatically opened for whoever we wanted to talk to, whatever we wanted. The red carpet was rolled out. Mm -hmm. So I became one of the premier entertainment reporters in America by default. Huh. Wasn't what I planned on at all, but I was having a lot of fun. Yeah. And I did that for four years, five years, five years. And then one day, the pilot tape, which is VHS, mm -hmm. came in for NYPD Blue, which of course is one of my idols, yes. you know, Stephen Bochco, mm -hmm. David Milch, and they were going to do this groundbreaking new police drama, and there was all kinds of controversy, and, and I was in the TV Guide screening room, I plugged in NYPD Blue, and absolutely dissolved into tears, mm -hmm. because it was one of the best things I'd ever seen on television. It rocked my world. I thought, you came here, you moved to Los Angeles, this place that you still have trouble loving, mm -hmm. and to do this, and you're not doing this. So I started writing scripts again. Um, and it took another two years. But one of my friends, uh, more of an acquaintance than a friend, it was one of the producers of Cheers. I'd interviewed him several times. And I asked him if he would be willing to read one of my scripts and to tell me what he thought. And he read my NYPD Blue pilot mm -hmm. script, I'm sorry, spec script, mm -hmm. not pilot. And he said, well, I, I don't know anything about drama, but I think you should be working. Huh. So he sent my name over to William Morris. William Morris signed me immediately, and I was on the staff of Sisters within three weeks. Oh because they packaged sisters and they had an opening for a ground level staff writer. And again, it was just like boom, 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 boom. It wasn't planned at all. And it would never happen that easily uh -huh. today as I have since mm -hmm. discovered now that I'm trying to re-enter the business. So that began five years of being on staff and learning how to be a television writer. Oh, wow, and then the writing on sisters was so beautiful. I mean, yeah. for me, that was one of my formative shows. And so I remember, like, when we would go home and, like, you'd have to catch the show when it was actually on yeah. and, and sit down and watch it. And it was one of those shows, if I missed it, I'd feel really sad. I wanted to see what was happening. And yes. Just beautiful writing. Thank you. So you're writing, I mean, you've been on teams because you've been on um, the broadcast news and team of people, but to write as a team. Mm -hmm. Was that different for you once you got into the TV writing room? Um, yes, culturally it is a very different situation from being, so, well, it, it, it's more akin to television news certainly than it is to print journalism. When you're working for a, for a newspaper or a magazine, you're a one-man band. Mm -hmm. Certainly a TV guide, when I was there, they actually gave us the layouts and we were able to actually do our own, put our own articles into our own layouts and be our own editors. Mm -hmm. So. It was you, it was all you, and then your bureau chief who would actually then say yes or no to what you've done, but you were basically working by yourself. Mm -hmm. Going into a television writer's room is a completely different animal. It's more like a television newsroom in that it is very deadline oriented. 
It is very play nicely with others if you're lucky, but there is a hierarchy and you pretty much have to just button your lip when you're young and hungry and learning mm -hmm. and let the senior producers and executive producers call the shots. And that was tough for me because there were many, many times when the, um, the creators of Sisters would change our scripts sure. and I disagreed strongly with what they had done mm -hmm. and I couldn't do anything about it. And right. you learn that that's, your job really is to learn how to make television. You know, your job is not to recreate what they've already created and your job is not to impose your opinion. Your job is to be a team player yeah. and just to produce a script and let them, you know, have to let them do what they're going to do. So you also have to get very lucky and, um, and respect the people in the room because you'll be spending eight, 10, 12 hours a day with them. Yeah. If you don't like them, it's tough. It's tough. That's a big right. chunk of your life that you're spending with people that you don't like. I liked half of them <laughs> and disliked the other half. And one in particular was a mean girl mm. who decided that I needed to be humiliated daily. Wow. And so again, as a staff writer, you just kind of take it in on the jaw. And at one point I went to my executive producer and I said, should I just be quiet? Because every time I say something or try to contribute, she just she just puts me down yeah. and she said look if you're gonna be in a writer's room you cannot just take up oxygen you have to keep talking so just keep talking and by the way we don't like her either because <laughs> they can see oh yeah right. oh yeah they thought she was a bully and a horrible person and mm. but they didn't stop her mm. but they they demanded that I continue to contribute which right. was which was correct and I just needed to get a little bit tougher about yeah. it so that was a tough year. The great thing about that year was that it was a fabulous boot camp. Mm -hmm. It was an order for 28 episodes for the last season of Sisters. Wow. Huge order. And they just kept it going round robin. You know, you write the first episode and the next person writes the next episode. And there were wow. five women in the writer's room. And we just kept going around. And it came around to me five times. Wow. So I got to write five scripts in my first year on staff, which was phenomenal learning experience. Yeah. We were all dog tired by the <laughs> end of it, but it, I, I couldn't have asked for a better learning experience, truly. With all your writing across the board, you know how they say that for every writer there's a kernel of truth, something that they, their stories are always about, even if they're going to different places and doing different things. Do you think that's true? And if you do, what's your kernel of truth in your stories and your writing? <laughs> if there isn't a kernel of truth, then you shouldn't be writing, right. is my opinion, <laughs> yeah. truly. Um, I've always said to my students that you get to know the people in a writer's room better than your family because you have to bring yourself, your stories, your history, your family experience into that room mm. or you have nothing to contribute. Right. Because something that happened to you, nobody has lived your life, right? Nobody right. on this planet has lived the life you've lived. So if you don't bring that into the writer's room, what good are you? Yeah. You know, so can you imagine, for example, being in the Sex and the City writer's room? Can you imagine revealing the kind of things that you've experienced as a woman mm -hmm. in that room? Those people would know you better than your gynecologist. Absolutely. Okay? <laughs> so that's the kind of thing, if, if it, it has to bleed on the page or it's not worth it. You mm. know, what we are as artists are people who are trying to allow other people to feel that they are not alone. 
That's my view yeah. of what an artist is, that we are trying to connect, to reach and connect on a human level. And if you can't be honest on the yeah. page, then you should hang it up. You shouldn't be writing. And that takes me right back to that moment you said when you put the VHS in for NYPD Blue and you felt this connection, this something that your soul needed that it wasn't honoring. That's right. Ooh, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, we. I think there's so much technical aspects to what we do that I think even if our natural instincts are to give that emotional truth, our brain can sometimes chase us away from that. So it's a good reminder to come back to that. And Roseanne... Uh, came up with this slogan now for the the program mm -hmm. which is write reach represent mm -hmm. oh i read <laughs> that and i thought that is genius oh, great. because it is yes right reach the human connection mm -hmm. right but represent to me is not only represent yourself as a woman or a particular color or a particular mm -hmm. religion right all the parts it is of our to represent yourself your being your spirit Mm. on the page. Yeah. That's what we should be doing. Ooh, I love that. So coming to the program, the actual program, you're a mentor. We're so lucky to have you. Um, scripts are coming out in tip-top shape from your mentors. People are like, yes, every, every period is in place, every comma is my story, my heart, my soul. So I want to ask you, for you, what does it mean to be a mentor? What do you give your students that no one else could? What I'm hoping to give any student um, I have is the confidence to write whatever they want to write. Now in order to do that you have the art of writing but you also have the science of writing, mm. right? So what I try to do is to build the architecture of story yeah. so strongly that they can be launched from that architecture into any story they want to tell. So once they understand the fundamentals of what it means, the Greeks figured this out 2,500 years mm -hmm. ago and nothing has changed. But it's amazing how many programs, even at USC where I also teach, right. there are gaps. I will find students who come to upper level classes and somehow they've missed some of the fundamentals so that they don't understand classic story structure. It worked then, mm -hmm. it works now. My question when I was in Chicago on television, in television news and watching Hill Street Blues or China Beach or whatever, um, how do they do that? How do they make me cry? Right. How do they make me feel so much? Is answered by the Greeks 2,500 years ago. And so that answer is what I want to give my students. Mm -hmm. Now, beyond that answer of how to build story so that it works, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know why it works. I, I have no idea why Aristotle is right, but somehow as human beings we are wired to respond emotionally to that particular journey of mm -hmm. wanting something very badly, having obstacles in our way, finding a crisis point where we really don't think we're going to get what we want, yeah. and then resolving it one way or another. Yeah. But going through that process of going through that journey, you also have to recognize that there is a professionalism involved. And that's where I think my journalism training comes in as well as the artistic training. Mm -hmm. It is deadlines are real. Yes. Clean copy is real. Mm -hmm. If you submit, as I did, two pilots to CBS, and you submit a 12-page outline to CBS, you will get a phone call, as I did, saying, you have a typo on page 11. Wow. 
one typo, mm -hmm. one word in a 12-page outline, would you please correct this so that we can distribute your outline to the group of development executives? And you are mortified, right? right? But somehow, that one word is wrong. They want it corrected. They want it perfect. That is what is expected of you. Mm -hmm. If you're in a writer's room and you're a staff writer, your main job, other than making your showrunner's life easy and to write your best work, mm -hmm. is to not give anybody else a mess to clean up. Mm. So if you turn in something with your name on it, and I don't care, you don't have to be a creative writer to do this. Yeah. If you send an email, if you send a resume, if you send a letter of introduction, I don't care. If your name is on it, it's got to be beautiful. It's got to mm -hmm. be correct. It's got to be spell-checked. It's got to be lovely. It's you mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, my students know that I am super tough about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they send me a mess, I send it back. I'm not reading a mess. No, mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. send me your mess. I'm not cleaning up your mess and I'm not reading your mess. Oh, wow. So send me something beautiful that represents the best that you have to offer. Because yeah. if you send me a mess, I'm not going to notice how brilliant you are, how marvelous your story mm -hmm. is. What am I going to notice? Typos, right. wrong words, mistakes, whatever. That's what I'm going to see on the page. I don't want any part of it, and mm. nor is anybody else. Yeah, and we really want those scripts to be ready to be sent out. When you get that degree, it's not just about the fact that you've spent two years here. It's about you have work. We are all about making working artists, and we are lucky, and not just lucky, but the work has been there. We've got people going in the room right away, even though our program's a relatively new program. That's right. And I think it's because we want to send you out in the world ready. Ready. And it, that is the other part of my job. There should be no mystery about what's expected of you in the real world. Mm -hmm. You can't just kind of flounder around in school and think, well, it's good enough. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. Not when CBS is going to send back your 12-page outline with one mistake and tell mm -hmm. you to do it over again. Right. I asked um, one of the development executives at CBS, I said, what do you do if a script comes in, a pilot script, because they usually order about 50 scripts yeah. every year, sure. all the networks do. What do you do if a script comes in and it's like one of my students and it's a mess, right? What do you do? And she said, if I see typos in the first five pages, it goes in the trash. Wow. I said, if it's from Martin Scorsese uh -huh. or Steven Spielberg or what, you know, because these yeah. people are all competing to be on television now. She said, especially if it's Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg because they should know better. Wow. And I'm not giving them $8 million an episode mm. if they can't be trusted to turn in a beautiful script. Why should I trust them? Wow. So Ooh. that's what I tell my students. That is the level of professionalism that is expected. Also, this is a graduate school, that's okay? Right. You want a master's degree? That's you better right. show me something. That's right. Show me something that's beautiful. And I know when I, I will say, you know, I'm so proud of this program and you, and I think, the words low res, because it's an MFA in TV and screenwriting, low residency, what does that mean? I think a lot of people will, will you push me as far as my work can go? Yeah. Which was, I think, is everyone's worry when they come in the room because they want to be doing the work. Yeah. And I always tell them, oh, yes. <laughs> because the work that we use with low res, because as writers, mm -hmm. you can be one-on-one -on -one with your mentor when you're not on site. So low res doesn't mean that you're not really earning that master's. That's right. In fact, you're working all the time and you're really getting those scripts ready and you're making that beautiful piece. Right. 
Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to sit with you. And, Me too. And um, I can't wait to see everybody here on the lot with us and for them to meet you too. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.